Welcome, everybody, to the London School of Economics. Um, I'm uh, delighted to be able to introduce Giles Dooley um, to you this evening. Um, he calls himself a humanitarian photographer, and humanitarian photography is, uh, is an incredibly difficult art form and skill. Um, the challenge, I think, for all humanitarian photographers is to try and construct images of um, suffering, which aren't uh, uh, lacking in dignity, that aren't degrading, uh, that aren't uh, creating sort of images of flies uh, in the eyes, um, but also link you to the person uh, that's uh, suffering. And when you see Giles's book, uh, One Second uh, of Life, you see that the pictures behind the headlines are really quite amazing. Um, they're intimate, they're painful, they're beautifully, some beautiful. Some of the pictures are wonderfully charming. Others are deeply disturbing. But all of them share um, a, a dignity, which I think is really quite impressive. And the ability to capture that dignity in suffering um, is a, a, a real skill that he's, he's brought um, he's got an absolutely fascinating life, which he'll, uh, he'll tell you about. Um, perhaps uh, the most interesting thing he's doing at the moment, uh, apart from clearly talking to you, uh, is he's working with UNHCR uh, for the next six months on cataloguing the refugee crisis. So that might be something that uh, we can bring up in the question time uh, towards the end. Um, I had a read of Giles's book, and uh, I noticed at the start uh, that it says um, some really quite inspiring words. He probably didn't mean them that way, but uh, they, they are. Um, it, it says, a few years ago at an exhibition I held in London, a man who had just finished walking around the gallery came over to me, and somewhat angrily he scoffed, do you think you'll change the world with these photos? Uh, no, I, or Giles replied, but maybe I'll inspire the person who can. So you are potentially the person who could be inspired to change the world. So without uh, any further uh, ado, Giles, uh, please inspire them to change the world. <laughs> uh, well, good evening, everybody. Um, as is my, my normal habit, I only actually um, checked what the title of the talk was uh, today um, and saw that it was about uh, one second of light about the book. Um, and I must admit, I thought it was kind of counterintuitive in a way to come and talk a book, about a book of photography. I mean, the very nature of photography is it's something uh, to be looked at. But then actually I found that that, that challenge has been beaten recently because I got asked to go on uh, the radio to talk about my five favourite photographs, which again seemed like a really strange thing to be asked to do. And I was very nervously kind of thinking, how do I talk about my photographs on the radio? And how do I ascribe them? And anyway, so I've been working this through in my head and then I got there, and I found that the presenter was also blind. So I was then describing to a blind person on the radio one of my photographs, <laughs> which has a whole kind of, uh, yeah, a long story how that worked out. Anyway, um, I was going to talk, as I say, about um, my, my photographs today and about One Second of Light, which is a new collection of my work. And then I was on the train today, and I was kind of thinking what I was going to talk about, how I was going to talk about it. And I actually decided to kind of slightly uh, flip it. I was going to talk about the problems with the book and the lessons that I learnt putting it together. Because as most photographers or creatives, we tend to look at our own work with a very critical eye. Um, I look through most of the photographs in the book and think, I wish I'd done things differently. 
certainly on a creative level. But I also wish I'd done things differently as, as an advocate, um, as a humanitarian photographer. And actually, putting this book together has been one of the best learning experiences for me to see through the book uh, the mistakes that I made and the lessons that I learned. So I thought actually what I would do this evening is go through some of the stories, some of the, the, the photographs in the book, and maybe talk a little bit about the lessons that I actually learned myself. It's one of the things I love about photography. I've been taking photographs for 25 years, and every day I am still learning. I'm still learning technically how to take better pictures. I'm learning creatively how to tell stories. And I'm learning, as I say, as a humanitarian and as an advocate, how to give voice to people in a better way. So anyway, I'm going to start. Um, I'm not going to start. Can you mind? Yeah, well, I was going to act them out, but... <laughs> I thought I was actually going to have to do a whole talk about photography without photographs again. So I'm going to start. Um, can we get the lights down a little bit more, actually? So... I'm very demanding. First I asked to be on this side of the desk, and then the lights down. Um, I'm going to start in um, Angola in 2008. This really was the first time that I did a, uh, a series of photographs based on a humanitarian theme. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit in a minute about how I ended up being there. But basically, in 2008, I decided to go and, and live in Angola for six months, really immerse myself in the country, and try and, and become a photographer. Up to this point, I really hadn't done uh, documentary photography. I did a lot of stories when I was there with different um, NGOs, um, from MAG, the demining charity, IOM, UNHCR. Um, but I also went and did uh, stories that I found myself. One of the stories I did was, was here, um, in an old building, an old school building in a place called Bailundo. It was at the end of the civil war in Angola, there were still a lot of issues going on, and widows of uh, soldiers who were part of the rebel army had taken into hiding. The government forces had taken over the area, and there were a lot of attacks on uh, the former rebels, and especially on the wives who had been left behind. So these widows and young children had gone to shelter in this old building. Um, I was told about the, the, the building and, and the widows by uh, a priest. And he said to me, Giles, he goes, you have to go and see this place. The light is incredible. Now, I was kind of young in terms of doing this humanitarian photography, and I was kind of going, no, I'm not there for the light. I'm there to tell the stories. And he was going, but no, but really, you should see it. The light is amazing. And of course, as soon as I got there, the first thing I thought was, wow, the light is amazing. <laughs> But actually what happened is, is all the widows and the women there and the children just ran off. They, they disappeared. And I was left in this empty building, which admittedly had great light, but no people. Um, I wasn't quite sure what to do, um, but I thought about it. I thought, well, maybe I should just hang around and come back the next day. And so that's what I did. Day by day, I would go back. Um, and eventually, uh, the women got used to me, and then they would carry on uh, doing, doing their, their daily routine until I was able to take photographs comfortably. Um, I'm kind of going to ruin the, the, the nature of this photograph now by telling you the story of it because, you know, I, I thought this was this great kind of biblical scene. It was very beautiful. But actually what happened after this is, is after about a week, uh, the women, many of them in their 60s and 70s, had become so familiar with me that they had a game. And the game was every time I was taking a photograph, one of them would try and creep up behind me and pinch my ass. 
So actually, after I just took this beautifully serene photograph of what I thought was suffering and, and all the rest of it, um, one of them pinched my ass and everyone just burst into hysterics. <laughs> but I created this, this set of photographs and at the time, you know, when I came back uh, to the UK, they were, they were well received, um, they were published, uh, they won some awards. Uh, connected to the, uh, the place where the widows were staying was an orphanage, which again was a very moving, a very beautiful place uh, to photograph. It was a virtually self-sufficient place. The nuns that had set it up um, were looking after these orphans who had, had lost their families during the war. Uh, many had seen atrocities. There was no support for them. No outside organization was helping them. So they'd become this kind of self-sufficient family. And again, it was a very beautiful thing. I went there and, and I photographed... Um, the orphans living there. Um, this is one of my favourite photographs. I always think you can almost hear this nun kind of creak, creaking as she, she ladles out the beans. And again, this is a photograph that really represents a lot of my work um, further on, which is, is the kind of the banality of life and the little daily scenes that often show compassion, show uh, normalcy. And this was one of, the, one of the nuns who was a very stern woman. She was actually the, the mother superior, and she was kind of brutally brushing this orphan's hair, but actually the orphan was kind of laughing and you could see there was real affection between them. But as I say, this was the first uh, story that I did and it's one of the most beautiful uh, stories I think I ever photographed. But through this kind of talk, I'm going to explain why actually this is probably the worst set of photographs in the book. And for me, as an advocate, this was where I really failed, um, but I learnt a huge amount of lessons. So I'm going to go back a step now um, and talk about how I actually ended up becoming a humanitarian photographer. I was um, 18. Um, I was on a sports scholarship in the States. I was the world's worst boxer. Um, I thought I was really good. Um, I remember getting a backhanded compliment from my coach that took me about a year to even get that he wasn't meaning it as a compliment. Um, I was in a, a fight and as I came out he said, Giles, you're very good at taking a punch. <laughs> I walked away feeling very proud of myself and then realised well, maybe that wasn't a compliment. But anyway, so I had a, a, a attempt for a sports scholarship in the States. That was my, my life. And then I had a car accident. Um, I smashed my knees up and, and ended up in hospital. Um, back in the UK at 18, I suddenly didn't have any idea what I was going to do with my life. Um, I was in hospital for about six months. When I was in hospital, unfortunately, my godfather uh, passed away. Barry, who I was very close to, um, suddenly had a heart attack. His widow, Nita, came to visit me in hospital. And for some reason, she chose to bring two things with her. Two things that my godfather, Barry, had bought the week that he died. One of them was an Olympus OM-10 camera, and the other was a book by the war photographer, Don McCullen. Lying in his hospital bed, I started looking through the work of, of Don McCullen. I'd never really seen powerful black and white images. I grew up in a house where really there was no interest in news, no interest in art. And they'd never really been confronted or seen black and white images taken of conflict and humanitarian disaster. Looking at Don McCullen's work from Vietnam, from Biafra, uh, from Bangladesh, I was incredibly moved. In fact, to this day, if I shut my eyes, I can still remember some of those images. I used to have them in um, the sitting by the side of my bed, and in the middle of the night, I'd have to kind of take the book out and look at those <coughs> images again. And lying in that hospital bed, there and then, that's what I resolved I wanted to do. I wanted to become a war photographer. 
So I had this Olympus 10 camera. Um, I actually taught myself photography lying in a hospital bed, photographing all the doctors and nurses and anybody that would come by. Um, obviously, as an 18-year-old, I photographed the nurses mainly. Um, and, and taught myself photography and left hospital full of good intentions to go and change the world, capture wars with my images. Um, I had a few friends, though, that were in bands, a couple of musicians, and they said, look, why don't you come and take some photographs of, of what we do? It'll be really cool. So I started taking some pictures of, of them, um, and kind of before I knew it, uh, by accident, I had become a music photographer. Um, magazines started asking me would I go in and take photographs of bands, and... I found myself traveling around the world, hanging out with all these cool bands, cool musicians, taking photographs. I was 18, 19 years old. Suddenly, photographing war didn't seem very interesting, but hanging out in Miami with some models did. Um, I actually remember, funny enough, doing uh, one of these stories and coming back to Somerset and actually really being put in my place by um, local people in the Cat's Head, which was our local pub. And I came back and I'd just been to Detroit to photograph the Black Crows. I was... I guess 19 years old, and I thought I was the dog's bollocks. I'd been like to Detroit, hanging out with this rock band, drinking whiskey with them backstage. And I come back, go to the cat's head, and one of the locals who sat there, and he goes, all right, Giles, all right? He goes, where have you been? And I said, well, I've been to Detroit to photograph a band. And he turned to his friend, and he just said, oh, terrible how far young folk have got to go for work these days. <laughs> but anyway, I loved it, and I got carried away, and, and for 10 years, I was a music and rock and roll and fashion photographer. But all the time I did it, there was a kind of nagging feeling in the back of my head that I could be doing something else. I could be doing something more worthwhile with my photography. But I couldn't really work out what it was. And increasingly, those concerns became a depression, became an anxiety. In the end, I was doing a photo shoot in London at the Charlotte Street Hotel. And in the middle of this photo shoot... Well, I'll tell you the rock and roll story first. The rock and roll story is in the middle of this photo shoot. I said, that's it. I'm done. It was a kind of photograph of some celebrity from Big Brother in a state of half undress. I said, that's it. I'm done. I didn't become a photographer to do this. Took my cameras and threw them out the window of the hotel. Anybody that knows me laughs at that story because they know I'm not that rock and roll. Um, I kind of had a little hissy fit and I threw them on the bed. (laughs) They just happened to then bounce out the window. So everyone else turned around just to see these cameras flying out the window. <clears throat> um, there's no image right now, so... Yeah, I'm trying. No, I'm saying there is no image, because... Yeah, it's, it's no... It's, no, there is no image. Oh, there is no image. On the slide. Are you sure? Yes. Okay, because I'm a bit scared now. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. <laughs> you sure? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe I should hold my hand up when there's no image, and when there is this. Um, anyway, so I threw out my, my cameras out this, this window, and I walked away from photography. As far as I was concerned, I was only 28, 29. Uh, My life in photography was over. I sunk into a a much deeper depression, and I really didn't know what had gone wrong with my life. Um, I was really lost. I spent two, three years in that state. And then one day, I got in a kind of random conversation with somebody uh, who came into the pub where I worked. This family had a young autistic son. And in this conversation, they said, would I be interested to come and help and be one of his carers? I don't really know why they asked me. I mean, later they told me it's because they wanted somebody that wasn't from the medical profession to spend a bit of time with their son. But for whatever reason they asked me, it completely changed my life. I would go and just spend a couple of hours with this young boy who was 17 at the time called Nick. Nick had incredibly severe autism. He struggled really to do anything on his own. But he was an incredibly sensitive young man. 
an incredibly caring young man, and I found very quickly that I was getting just as much from supporting him as he was possibly getting from me. Before I knew it, I was doing 24-hour shifts, and before I knew it, I was doing five or six a week and was actually living with him and his family. For two years, I was Nick's full-time carer, and I can honestly say they were the happiest years of my life to that point. And people couldn't really understand it. They're like, why have you given up this glamorous rock and roll lifestyle to become a carer? Because I think people look down on a job like that. But I could say to people, you know what, for the first time in my life, I am genuinely happy. Because for the first time in my life, I could see the direct and positive impact I was having on somebody else's. Up to that point, everything I'd done had either been to sell a magazine, to sell a band, to sell a fashion story, or to promote myself. But for the first time in my life, I was doing something to help somebody else. One of the biggest problems Nick had was getting people to understand his own story. He used to get very frustrated by his autism and would often self-harm when the frustration grew too big. He would punch himself until he was bleeding. When we would go and see the healthcare professionals, the psychologists, the social workers, they would always say, it can't be as bad as you're saying. We couldn't really get them to understand. We couldn't get Nick to explain his story to them. And then one day, we're sitting with his family, and we came up with a really obvious idea. Why didn't I use my photography to document Nick's life? So that's what I started to do. Um, working with Nick, I would photograph his day-to-day -day life. Um, we had such a lot of trust by then. Nick was comfortable for me to photograph him at, at any point. I would show him the pictures, and he would talk about which ones he liked, which ones he thought showed a side to him. Nick actually was very good at describing his own autism. He once said it was like being at the most amazing party. All your friends and family are in the kitchen, laughing, joking, and you can hear them. But you're stuck in the basement, and you don't know how to get up the stairs to join them. And somehow, through the photography, we were able to tell that story. And one day, I won't show you the picture today, but one day when Nick was self-harming and blood was streaming down his face, he was happy for me to take that photograph. And the next time we went and we saw the healthcare professionals, and the psychologists, we laid out all these images. And you could see the impact it had. These people that had said, oh, you're exaggerating, you're saying too much, when confronted by photographs, suddenly were shocked. And they said, God, we have to do something. Now, I can't say it changed Nick's life overnight, but it did go some small way into helping him getting the support that he needed. But the life that it changed the most was mine, because that was the moment I realized the power of photography. I realized what an impact my images could have, how they really could be an advocate for somebody. So there and then, I resolved that's what I wanted to do with my life. And so I set off to Angola. And as I say, I lived there for a few months. And I took the photographs that I showed you at the beginning. But as I say, I came back. Those pictures were published. Um, they got quite good acclaim. People said, oh, you're a great documentary photographer. But as the time went on, I went and did another couple of stories, but as time went on, I started thinking to myself, but why did I take those photographs? What was the point in those photographs? Yes, they were very beautiful. Yes, they were very interesting. But had they actually told anybody's story? Had they been for any reason? And I realized they hadn't. And so that's why when I told you, showed you those photographs at the beginning, for me, actually, they're the worst photographs in the book because they may be beautiful, but they didn't do anything. And I realized that's what I wanted to do. I actually wanted to do something with my images. I wanted to make some kind of change. And I must admit, at that time, 
I did think I could change the world with my photographs, but I knew it wouldn't work doing them like I had. So the next big turning point was Bangladesh. This time, I did my research. I spoke to NGOs, charities, and I said, what kind of stories are you struggling to get published? What kind of things do you want to get heard? And one of them told me about a camp in Bangladesh at a place called Kutapalong. And in this camp, there was an official refugee camp, and below it, an unofficial camp. And in the unofficial camp, 25,000 people were living with no access to healthcare, to education, uh, to any kind of facilities. And nobody was really talking about this story. And they said, you should go and tell that story. So I went there, and um, I met the people that lived there, and I met one of the village elders. And I explained what I wanted to do, and I said, look, I want to come tomorrow, and I want to set up a little studio. And I'm going to put a white sheet up, and I'm going to do portraits of people. And maybe you could help choose a few interesting stories or stories that you think should be heard. I turned up the next morning um, at 6 a.m. to this little makeshift studio made of of bamboos and a a sheet nick from a hotel. And when I got there, there were literally hundreds of people. I freaked out. These people were ill. People were coming up to me with tumours, carrying children, carrying dying relatives. And I said to the village elder, I said, look, these people have to understand. I can't help. I'm not a doctor. And the village elder looked at me and he said, no, we know that. We know you're a photographer, but at least you can tell their story. And again, for me, that was a big turning point. It was a point when I realized I shouldn't be going places to take photographs like I did when I was in Angola, which were about beauty, which were about image. I should be there to tell people's stories. And the first thing I'd have to do is listen and understand those stories. The next story I wanted to talk about, and the next kind of lesson I learned in my work, was in uh, South Sudan. I was there in 2009, um, covering uh, the conflict there for uh, Medicine Sans Frontières. By now, I decided the way forward was to always work with NGOs and charities, to kind of partner or collaborate with them to try and tell their stories. Not necessarily working for them or telling the story of their work, but helping them to advocate for the people that they worked with. One of the most shocking things I saw there were child soldiers. More than that, though, was seeing what happened to those child soldiers. This was a a young boy that had been brought in to the medical compound uh, run by Medicines Sans Frontières. I say medical compound, it was really just a collection of mud huts. The fighting had got quite intense quite suddenly. There was only one doctor working there. And suddenly he was having to deal with all these casualties being brought in every day. This young boy was brought in. Um, The doctor looked at him and he said, I don't think there's anything I can do. He was shot through the liver, through the arm. Um, He was probably mortally wounded. So the doctor left. And I found myself alone in a mud hut with this young boy. And I had to make the decision, do I take his photograph? Now, by then, I've been doing this work for several years and I thought I was doing it for all the right reasons. But being confronted with a dying boy who was probably 12 years old, taking his photograph felt like everything against every instinct within me. I did feel like a vulture. I felt inhuman doing it. I took a few frames, I put the camera down, and I sat with the boy for the rest of the day. But I can honestly say I felt physically sick. That evening, I sat with a doctor, Dr. Murray, and I said to him, you know, I don't think I can actually uh, do this work anymore. And he said to me, I'll tell you something. He was Australian. He was from the Australian outback. 
And he said as a young boy, he actually was brought up looking at things like National Geographic and Sunday papers. And it was images like this that had inspired him to become a doctor. And it was images like this that inspired him to go and work in places such as Africa. Now again, it's not one of those eureka moments where I suddenly thought, oh, that's fine, I love my work. I still felt sick about what I'd done. But again, this was the next lesson I learned. I learned at that point that I wasn't going to change the world myself. But as was said in the introduction, I realised that I may not be able to change the world, but I might be able to influence somebody that does. And that's one of my big beliefs, is that we can all be cogs in a bigger wheel of change. That on our own we can't do it, but that we all have roles that we can play and should play in creating change. The next story I was going to talk about was uh, Ukraine in 2010. Um, I went there, and by now, as I say, I think my work had progressed. It was very much now about the stories of the people I met, trying to live with them, really get to know people, and let their sort of own stories come through my photography. Um, I'd heard a lot about the drug use and the criminals and these child kids living in Ukraine, and I wanted to go and find out what the real story was behind the news headlines. So I got there, and I got to know this one uh, group, gang, I guess you could call them. I call them a family, a rather dysfunctional family, but they were a kind of family. And I went and, and lived with them and documented their life. Uh, this was the building where they lived, which was a kind of collapsed squat. And I got to know them, got to know their individual characters, um, got to see them play, got to see, as I say, everyday life. There was a lot of alcohol abuse and drug abuse, but for me that wasn't really the story. Likewise, there was a lot of violence in the house. A lot of these kids had come from abusive homes and they carried on that behaviour. But what I really saw that really interested me was things like this. A moment of tenderness when one of the girls had cut herself and the others were disinfecting her wound and, and telling her to stop it. And people often say to me, what's the most uh, shocking photograph you've ever taken? What's the most upsetting photograph? And I actually often refer to this image which seems strange because I have photographs of people who had just been blown up or shot. But actually this photograph really moved me because this was the moment in the mornings when they would clean up this squat. When these kids that I was told were useless, that were drug addicts, that were criminals, what I actually saw when I took this image was these young kids that just wanted a normal life. And this was the lesson I learned on this project, was that you don't always have to show how rough and terrible somebody's life is. And the image you're looking for is not often the image you think it is. To go and photograph these Ukrainian kids who are drug addicts, most people would think you need images of them injecting drugs, so shocking images. For me, much more shocking was to show how much they just wanted a normal life. On the last day, they took me out um, to the Black Sea uh, for a farewell celebration. Um, they went swimming, and the leader of the gang, uh, Sasha, he comes up to me, and, and bearing in mind this guy's just got out of prison for stabbing somebody, he puts his arm around my neck, and he goes, you, me, swim. And I went, I don't think so. No. You, me, swim. He's done quite a lot of vodka. He's looking a bit angry. I'm thinking, mm, not sure about this. Now, I should say, whenever I travel somewhere, you always kind of read the, you know, Google, Lonely Planet guy. Uh, three things about um, Odessa were to avoid the street kids. Um, watch out for crime, and whatever you do, don't go swimming in the Black Sea. <laughs> so obviously there I am, swimming in the Black Sea. Um, in the background, you can see some of the kids. They've got my camera, um, they've got my wallet, they've got my passport. <laughs> I'm thinking this is the point when they run off, 
I have to walk down to the police station in my wet pants. And the police would say, well, what happened? I go, well, I wanted to go swimming in the Black Sea, so I gave myself to some street kids. What could go wrong? But, of course, uh, they hadn't. And this was, again, another lesson that I've learned in the years of doing this work, and that is trust. And I've learned that I only gain trust when I give it. And so, actually, right from the beginning, I'd been leaving my cameras around. And at first, the kids would nick it, and they'd run off, and then they would realize I wasn't bothered, and they wouldn't quite know what to do, so they'd put it back. And as time went on, they realized that I did trust them completely. And in fact, what was happening in the background is one of the young kids, Lilik, who was about 14, he had my camera, and he was walking along the beach, and he was stamping. And when he stamped, the seagulls were taking off, and then he would take a photograph. And I was watching him do that, and I thought, that's amazing. All the other friends had just been kind of taking pictures of each other mooning and things. But he was doing something creative. He had an image in his head, and this 14-year-old boy was then trying to make it happen and capture it. So afterwards, I started talking to him. I said, Lilith, you know, I really want to encourage this, and I want to maybe get you a camera when I get back to London. I'll send it over, and you should really start to photograph your day-to-day life. And so I saw uh, Lilith that evening, and um, we, we discussed this. And then I left, and I said, on my way uh, back from the hostel where I was staying, I'll go to the airport tomorrow, but I'll pop in and say goodbye. And when I came by in the morning to say goodbye, uh, Lilith was dead. He died that night. Um, his girlfriend, Rusella, who you see there, had found him dead in the bed next to her. He was cold. It was probably a combination of uh, the pills that they nicked, uh, the cold, the damp, the vodka, whatever it was. He passed away that night. The police, they came, and they got his body, and they dumped it in an unmarked grave. And really, it's people like Lilik is why I do the work that I do. Because to me, his story is as important, as relevant, as anybody's in this room as the stories of my own family and my friends. And for me, it's an honour and a privilege to meet these people and to be able to tell their stories. I'm going to move on to um, Sudan, where I went to visit for the first time a project run by emergency. And actually, this was a a really nice, moving and uh, uplifting story for once. Um, This was uh, the first cardiac centre to be run for free in the whole of Africa that emergency had set up. It was very much the project of Gino Strada, Uh, the founder of Emergency, who his passion is heart surgery. And he had a vision to create a cardiac centre that had the same standards as anyone built in Europe. He always says that if you're going to treat a child in Africa, you should treat it the same as if you were treating your own child in Italy. So anyway, so you've made this amazing hospital. Um, I should say Gino is quite a character. Um, It's one of the most immaculate hospitals you've ever seen. Um, Gino, who I'd first seen actually in Afghanistan in a photograph, and I thought he was a movie star because he was outside this hospital with a cigarette hanging from his mouth, kind of blood across him, looking out into the distance. I thought, what film is that from? And then I realised it was a real person. And so actually when I met him at the, the, the emergency hospital in, in uh, um, Sudan, he was walking around uh, the wards still with a cigarette hanging from his mouth. And all the kind of nurses going, you can't do that. He's like, my hospital. <laughs> but anyway, it was one of the most amazing places I've ever been. And, and I got to, to witness... Um, heart surgery, which, let's say, after all the work I'd done, uh, was something incredibly positive to see. And this is Wedi and Eunice, two kids who had just had heart surgery. But one of the reasons I wanted to show this story is because it was the beginning of the next episode in my life. As we sat in the hospital, we discussed about what my next project should be. And one of the things we discussed was Afghanistan and the fact that people were really not talking about the civilian casualties. Emergency runs the hospital there in Kabul, which is the only free hospital 
uh, for victims of war. And so sitting there with Juno Strada, we discussed and decided maybe that's what I should do next. So a few months after doing uh, this picture, I went to Afghanistan to document the war there. As well as documenting what happened to the injured civilians, I also wanted to document what war really meant and the impact it actually had on the soldiers fighting it. I took these photographs in Kandahar of a US uh, strike on a former uh, Mujahideen fort. It was really the closest I'd ever been to the epicenter of war. I don't really have any interest in showing pictures of people firing guns of conflict. But as somebody whose work is about the impact of war, there was something that drew me to that epicenter, to understand what that force was that causes so much destruction. The day after taking those photographs, um, this happened. I spent, the next, um, I spent the next 46 days in intensive care. Um, nobody thought I would pull through. On two occasions, uh, my family was called in to say their goodbyes. It was a tough 46 days, but actually it got tougher after those 46 days because that's when I was moved to a high dependency unit. And for the first time, I really became aware of my situation. I lost both my legs and my arm. Um, this hand was badly damaged. I was told I'd probably never live independently again. I may never walk, and there was certainly no question of me ever working again. This evening, I've been trying to talk about some of the stories that I learnt through my work. This is when I learnt the most important one. I learnt how much photography meant to me. Three days after I got injured, actually, when I first arrived in the UK, um, I was wheeled past my sister. I had an oxygen mask on. Um, my sister could see I was trying to say something. As I say, my family had been told I probably wouldn't make it through that night. So my sister probably thought I was going to say some nice last words, like, I love you, or, or something. So they removed the oxygen mask. But the only words that came out were, I am still a photographer. And right from day one, I resolved somehow, if I could return to doing the work that I love, the work that had taken me a long time to rediscover, then none of this would matter. About three months after I got injured, for the first time I was well enough to have a shower. I was put in a, a wheelchair and taken through to the shower room. It was the first time I had seen myself in a full-length mirror. I burst into tears. I didn't recognize myself. I was actually repulsed by what I saw. I was kind of disgusted by how I looked. That night, when I was taken to bed, I remember thinking to myself, I wish I hadn't made it. It'd be a lot easier if I'd just died in Afghanistan. I couldn't really deal with my new reality. But the next morning, uh, something had kicked in. I guess it was my stubbornness or something, but the next morning I kind of thought, no, I've spent my career photographing people in similar situations. It's time to turn the camera on myself. It's time to empower my own story in the way that I tried to do with other people. So the only thing I knew to do was to take a photograph of myself. So my friend Simon came to the hospital and broke me out. We went to his photographic studio um, via the pub. Um, and we got there. 
and I did this self-portrait. And I'd been thinking a lot about Roman statues and Greek statues. In fact, I'd been at the British Museum just before I went to Afghanistan. And I remember thinking how when you see these statues, even though they're broken, you don't really miss the bits that are not there. And so I kind of called it my Greek statue photograph. And it was the time when I used everything I had learnt in photography in telling other people's stories to tell my own story. And it worked. It completely empowered myself. This was when the point when I reclaimed my own story. When I said, yes, this has happened to me, but I am still the same person inside. So the amazing thing is, actually, I do genuinely believe it's photography that saved my own life. After taking this picture, things kind of got easier. Um, I had 37 operations over that year um, and eventually started to go back to rehab um, and I learned how to grimace <laughs> and to walk. And eventually I kind of learned how to hold a camera again. All the time I was in hospital, I kept remembering the conversation I'd had with Gina Strada about documenting injured civilians in Afghanistan. And that story seemed even more relevant than ever. So 18 months after my injury, I found myself back in Afghanistan at the hospital run by emergency in Kabul. And I started to document people who had been injured in very similar ways to myself. As I say, there was an irony in that this was the story that I was setting out to do. And yet there I found myself having gone through exactly the same experience as many of the people being photographed there. And it gave me a completely new insight. Uh, this is actually a photograph of a young man who had just been told his leg was going to be amputated. And I thought, who better to tell that story than me, than somebody that actually knew what he was going through? You know, often people ask me why I carry on doing the work, why I went back to Afghanistan, why I still continue to document stories. And I often refer them uh, to the story of Atola. Atola was seven years old when he was walking to school. Um, he was walking to school just a few miles away from where I got injured, just a couple of months after I got injured. And on his way to school that day, he stepped on a landmine. He was rushed to the emergency hospital in Kabul. They saved his life. And I met him at the ICRC limb fitting center in Kabul. And people say, do you ever get upset taking photographs? Do you ever find it too emotionally draining? And I'll be honest, it's like when I'm working, like a surgeon, you kind of somehow separate yourself from it. But that day, looking through my camera, photographing the toller, I found myself crying. Because I kept thinking to myself, why should a seven-year-old boy have to be in the same pain that I'm in every day, both physically and mentally, simply because he was walking to school? And how could I not continue to document stories like a toller's? And that's why I'll carry on doing the work that I do to the day I die. Because I maybe have an insight that nobody else does. And I must use that to continue telling these stories. I'm going to bring it up to the last story that's in the book. Um, and I guess, again, just shows how, unfortunately, these stories just continue. This was taken a few years ago in, in Zathri, in Jordan. And this was the beginning, I guess, of what we now call the refugee crisis, or certainly the beginning of the Syrian story. I was on the border with Jordan. I'd been told that this was like nothing I'd seen before. And again, being a little cynical, I was like, I'm sure it's, it's like other stories I've seen of refugees. But that night, as we, we sat there at the newly formed Zathri camp, we could hear gunfire in the distance at about one o'clock in the morning. That was the sign that people were trying to cross the border and the government was then firing on them. And then as we sat there in this 
incredibly cold night, pitch dark. Suddenly I saw this young girl walking out of the darkness. And she had a coat on and she had her head down and she was so incredibly focused. And she walked by me into the tent. And then through, in the darkness behind, I just saw hundreds and then thousands of people crossing. And that's what I witnessed every night. And I realized it really was the beginning of something that I'd never seen before. It was a whole nation on the move. And this is actually the story that I've now been following for the last three years. And unfortunately, a story that seems to show no end. I'm just going to recap very quickly on a couple of the stories and just remind of the lessons that I learned. This was the, the story I was telling you about Angola. This is where they pinched my ass after taking the photograph. The lesson I learned there was don't go there with your own narrative. I went there and tried to create the photographs that I thought we wanted to see of people suffering, of these dramatic scenes. I beat myself up every day when I see this picture because in my head I'm like, why didn't I take the picture of them laughing? It's because at the time I thought that was not a serious photograph. The lesson I learned, though, was that that was the story. This one is the lesson when I learned you can't change the world on your own, but that we can all make a difference. Likewise with this. And again, this is the time when I learned don't go there and take the picture that you think people want to see. If people are suffering, we should know that. Maybe you can show them doing other things. Often now I show photographs of people laughing in refugee camps because that's what I see. You don't have to explain somebody's life as shit if they're an orphan living in a, a, a sort of broken-down building in the Ukraine and they're a drug addict. But maybe you can show the other side. And then the story of Atola. And actually, this is a really important uh, story for me, this whole story, the whole set of pictures that's in the book done at the, the emergency hospital. And the reason is, getting back to the whole beginning of this, of why I do the work. As was said at the beginning... I realized that I wasn't going to change the world on my own. But I did think maybe, at some point, my photographs would influence somebody that could change. I received a letter not that long ago from somebody who had seen this set of pictures done in Afghanistan. It was a young boy, I guess he was 18, in Australia. And he wrote to me and he explained that he'd been really struggling at school. And I remember thinking, well, why is he writing to tell me this? Very interesting, but why is he writing to me? And he said that he really wanted to be a doctor. He wanted to be a surgeon. But he'd been struggling. People told him he wouldn't ever achieve that. But he wanted to write and tell me that in his last year he'd studied harder than ever and that he'd just been accepted in Melbourne Medical School and that he'd actually been in the top 1% and was now going there to be a surgeon. And he said, I'm writing to you to thank you. He goes, because I have one of the pictures that you took in Afghanistan on my wall. And every day when I was struggling and wasn't sure if that's what I wanted to do, I would look at that photograph, and that inspired me to do what I do. So in all honesty, if this book is the end of my work, I feel that I have actually set out and achieved what I wanted to do, which was to influence one person that could make a difference. And people say to me, God, you must be very angry about what happened in Afghanistan. You must blame Muslims. You must blame the Taliban. And I would say, I have no anger for the people that injured me. I don't feel that I was injured by the Taliban. I don't feel like I was injured by a landmine. I was injured by hatred and by ignorance. And the only way I know how to confront those are with my photographs and with my words. And I guess the great irony is that rather than silence me, that bomb made my voice that little bit louder. 
And this book represents that voice. Thank you for listening. We have some time set aside for questions. Um, I'd be very grateful if you could, uh, as I'm looking around, if you could sort of wave so that I know I've got some questions lined up and I'll, I'll try and stack them in a very fair way. Um, if it's your turn to put a question, please uh, to pose the question. Um, please say who you are and uh, where you're from. That's uh, good. That would be absolutely wonderful. Um, there's a gentleman. Um, just want to say thank you, um, first of all, and apologise because I have to run off shortly to see um, your buddy's massive attack. Ah, yes. Um, oh, sorry, I'm Vish, um, ex-photojournalist, um, very interested in all this stuff. Um, could you tell me some of your stories about working with Massive Attack and how they used your photography? Yeah, of course. Um, the Massive Attack connection actually goes back 25 years ago. Um, I was playing pool in a pub in Bristol and... Um, I met the guys from Mass Effect. They, their first album had just come out, Blue Lines, and we got chatting, having a few beers. And I told them I'd just started studying photography. And uh, Rob or, or Dee, um, one of the main guys from the band, said, like, you should come and show us your work. Maybe we can find something for you to do. And I said to him, well, I'm not ready yet. Um, so about 25 years later, <laughs> um, I called him. I mean, we had met a couple of times in between, but, but essentially we hadn't actually worked on anything. And I was in Lesbos working on this project for the UNHCR, uh, documenting the crisis across Europe. And I have to say, even after a decade of, of documenting the effects of conflict, there was something very unique and upsetting uh, about what I witnessed in Lesbos. And I think, you know, as a photographer, uh, making the image, creating the photograph is only one part of the job. There's no point taking a photograph if people don't see it, if people don't hear these stories. And sometimes, you know, the newspapers or when work gets published, I know that the people looking through it kind of already know my point of view or already know the story. The secret is to try and engage with people that wouldn't normally see this work. And so immediately I just thought I wanted to talk to, to Massive Attack. They have a history of using politics in their shows. It wouldn't be weird for them to suddenly do something that had that kind of context. But normally they tend to use graphics, and normally it tends to be facts and figures. So anyway, so I actually read, rang them on Skype from the beaches in Lesbos and said, we have to do uh, something about this. What can we do? How can we um, do something about it? And I sent them some of the photographs, and, um, and Rob immediately got back in contact and they were incredibly moved by what was going on. And so their instinct immediately was to say, let's put them in our live show, let's project them um, through the show. And then as we discussed it and we, we, we tried out a couple of things in rehearsal, they decided that they would actually end the show with these photographs. And we weren't really sure how that would work. It's like at the end of the show, the music ends and these photographs come up showing the story of refugees across Europe. And actually, I went to see it uh, the first time myself in Brighton a couple of days ago. And actually, people cheered. People were really, really emotional and, and seeing these photographs. And for me, you know, photographers, we kind of work in isolation. We don't normally mix with people. Um, so actually, to see the response was, was incredibly moving. And again, for me, one of the few times I actually feel like I've done uh, my job. Because every, every photograph I do, it feels like somebody's entrusted a story with you. And they're not really trying to tell me the story. They're trying to tell me because they hope I can tell other people. And so to see these photographs projected at a concert and see a whole different audience engage with those images, 
felt like in some small way, yeah, I'd done my job. Okay. Uh, oh, we've got a veritable forest. Uh, we'll go for the lady. There's a, a microphone coming for you. Um, first of all, thank you very much for sharing your work. Um, I am a student here at LSE and previously was working for the ICRC in South Sudan and, uh, and in the Congo. And um, my question to you was actually about the video of your medical evacuation. I was wondering who uh, took the video and also um, as you, when, when did you first watch it um, and what was your, your feeling, your reaction when you saw it for the first time? Um, so it was just by chance that there was a Canadian photographer doing a story on the medevac crew, and so they all had helmet cams on. So actually the footage is shot by the medics themselves, um, just wearing helmet cams. Um, so really that was just pure coincidence that that happened to be there. I didn't know actually that there was anybody filming it or, or taking photographs at the time. I had some other things on my mind. Um, but later I found out, well actually I was in hospital, and I kind of overheard my brother talking about something. My brother's quite annoying like that. He keeps things away from me. And I kind of knew he was talking and hiding something. And then I found out that he said, yes, there was a photographer. He took some photographs, and there was a piece about it in the New York Times. And apparently they'd asked permission about whether I would be okay or whether the family would be okay about the pictures being used. I think my brother said something like, please don't enough to other people. (laughs) I'm sure you won't mind. Um, So the photographs were used. And they were worried that I would be upset seeing the photographs. I can honestly say, um, when I saw the photographs for the first time, I just kind of looked and thinking, well, I'd have cropped that differently. You know, <laughs> so you had this great shot, and you went, ooh, I don't know about that. You know? um, seeing the video was slightly different. Um, I guess what's, what's strange about the video is not the goriness, but in those moments, I thought I was going to die. I mean, the chances are I would have died. So I'm looking at myself, knowing that in my mind, at that point, I thought I was dying. So there's probably very few people that ever get to see video footage of themselves at the moment they think they're dying. So that was the kind of the weird thing. Um, and, yeah, but, but it, uh, you know, I can detach myself slightly from it. It's very hard. Like, my family can't watch it. There's other people that can't watch it, which I totally understand. Um, now, if I'm watching it with an audience, it's a little bit like when you're a kid and you're watching a film and a sex scene comes on and you're watching it with your parents, and you just kind of go, oh, God, just, like, this is really embarrassing. <laughs> and nobody says anything. You all just sit there quietly going, let's just get this over with, let's get this over with, and then talk about something else. So that's kind of how I tend to feel when it's on now. There is a lady here. Can we have a microphone over there, please? Okay, they're converging on you. Hi, uh, I'm Lisa from the Red Cross. Um, and I know uh, recently you've been in Finland uh, and you're working with quite a small community there, um, showcasing kind of the, the integration between the locals and the refugees. How important do you think it is to show that kind of positive side of things and not just the, the awful scenes that we've been witnessing in Lesbos, for instance? No, I mean, it's, it's hugely important. And, you know, the, the project I'm doing with the UNHCR is, is trying to really tell the whole story. And, you know, Lesbos is one part of the story. And it's an incredibly important part of the story. But it is only one small part of it. And so, you know, I followed the whole journey across Europe. And I really wanted to end up um, to see what happened. And interestingly, it was kind of uh, not necessarily by design, but I ended up starting on one small island on the tip of Europe and ended up on another small island at the other tip of Europe. And, and really what I saw there was, was really very moving. Uh, for people who don't know it, it's a story that I did um, recently in The Observer about a small island called Nagu, um, which has, I think, about 1,500 people living on this, this very remote island. And uh, 
Four months ago, they were told 100 uh, refugees, asylum seekers, were going to be placed in the hotel there. And at first, the locals were a little bit alarmed. It's a very small, um, very tightly knit community, and they said, how are we going to deal with these people coming? They were worried about men attacking women, all the kind of threats that people hear about in the papers. But they made a decision. They said, you know what? It's going to happen. Let's treat these people as our guests. So they don't refer to them as refugees or asylum seekers. They call them guests. And from day one, they decided to engage with them, to take them out. Um, and now they do everything from dancing lessons, piano lessons, bread making, country walks, football. It's a kind of non-stop social calendar. And increasingly, they've started to get things back from refugees. So now they're doing cooking lessons where you have these little old ladies in Finland learning how to make Afghan dishes. Um, on New Year's Eve, I kind of witnessed a very strange kind of mix of, of Finnish music and Afghan dancing. Um, and in a couple of months, as the hotel where they're staying opens for the summer season, uh, these refugees and asylum seekers are going to be moved. And it's actually the community now that is saying, what will we do when they go? Because they say it's brought them together. It's brought a new life uh, to this community. And they actually think it's the most positive thing that's happened to them. And they're actually campaigning to see if they can persuade the refugees and authorities uh, to keep them based there. Now, I'm not oversimplifying uh, the situation. Obviously, we can't um, unroll this kind of thing across Europe. The situation is vast. There's a million-plus refugees and asylum seekers across Europe at the moment. But we can learn from the idea of saying we will do our best to make these people feel welcome. And, as I say, it's been a very positive outcome that the community themselves, who could have been negative, who could have confronted these people, have actually gained from it themselves. And in answer to your question, it's just as important to show that story as it is to show the one of, of people in Lesbos. I've got a question, so I'm going to um, Go ahead. use my privilege as, uh, as chairman. Um, I'm going to use my privilege of veto. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you've clearly covered a, a, an enormous range of humanitarian crises over, uh, over your time as a photographer, and you, you have very, very strong and interesting views uh, about what you see. Um, but humanitarian photographers have often um, dabbled with... Um, very undignified um, pictures of um, famine, drought, disaster. Um, your pictures are, are obviously very different, um, and this comes from a sort of very personal view uh, of, of the world, uh, a very um, uh, a very human view uh, of the world. What would you say about um, NGO campaigns, uh, the way in which disasters are represented by the humanitarian community. Are there, are, are there any lessons that you would give to the wider uh, group of humanitarian photographers? I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to sort of give lessons to everybody and, and judge. I think everybody has different roles and, and different reasons. Um, you know, my work comes essentially from the fact that I really like people. You know, I really enjoy meeting people. I enjoy people's company. And it doesn't matter where you put me or what the situation is. It started when I was photographing bands. You know, I found that I really enjoyed hanging out with the bands and wanted to photograph them. And now when I'm photographing Ukrainian street kids or when I'm covering the refugee situation, I'm just meeting people and people that I normally like or want to find out about. It's very rare that I meet something I don't like. You know, there's always something interesting about people. And that's what I want to try and capture in a photograph. So I tend not to see the bigger situation. I tend to just see the person that I'm with and get to know them and want to tell their story. Now, for me personally, that's how I think we engage with stories. I think too often 
imagery of suffering, of humanitarian disasters, can actually cause a barrier between us. It can be an image where we all kind of get upset and shocked and go, oh my God, that's terrible, I want to do something. But we haven't really engaged with that person. I think a lot of photographers, filmmakers, journalists want to show the differences between us all. I'm really interested in what makes us the same. And so for me, if in the middle of a disaster, in the middle of a war, I find a scene uh, where somebody is brushing their child's hair, you know, when a father is teaching his kid how to play cricket, these normal little moments, these intimacies that we can all relate to, if I can capture that story, then I hope that somebody looking at that will say, oh, that's like my nephew, or that's like my son, or that's like my grandmother. And so you engage in a very different way. You don't really see these people as victims. You see them as victims of circumstance. And that's really what I try and get across in my work, is so that when you see the story, it's going beyond just trying to raise some money. It's also trying to engage with these people and say, you know what, they are no different to us. And at the moment, I think it's very important. You know, I was in Paris last week uh, spending time with, with some of the refugees that I've got to know during this crisis. And, you know, the main reason I was there was just to, to kind of see these moments of, of normality. You know, one of the girls who's a refugee, her friends had just bought her a record player and she was really excited because it was her 24th birthday and they bought her 24 records. And, you know, these were kind of just very daily moments. These were not the refugees that you see screaming on boats. But it's the same story. It's the same narrative. And I think it's important to show that side of it. Okay, there's... Oh, we've got two coming up here. We'll, we'll go for the... The one at the back first, and then we'll come to the, the lady in front. The, the lady here. Put, put your hand up a little bit higher. So that's it. Great. Uh, hi, I'm Nisha. I want to thank you for the work that you did in Bangladesh, because I'm Bengali and we're often ignored in the news. I was just wondering, um, you said yourself that you like the stories to present themselves, and you're, you're just there capturing the moment. So in a way, you're amplifying the voices of others, but your self-identity, your sense of self, you also said that you take a lot from being able to do this. So when you look at your work, do you see your self-identity laid out in the pictures, including the stories of others? You know, it's, it's really interesting. As a, as a photographer and somebody that loves photography, I often think when I look through other photographers' work, you get a sense of their character. And so sometimes I can just look at a photograph and I can think, God, that man's arrogant. <laughs> or I bet she's really lovely. Or, you know, you just get a sense of people. I won't name names because that will get me in trouble. But there are certain photographers that say you do get a sense of, of that character. And even in, even in the documentary world, you know, sometimes you can almost think somebody is a little bit above the people they're photographing. And other times you think they're really relating. It's funny because looking at my own work, I don't really see that. You know, I, I try, I say, to take the self out of, of the work that I do. But I guess it's inevitable that part of you remains within the images. The images are, um, you know, again, I could say it's like I'm a mirror, I'm just reflecting these stories. But of course, it's... it's how I take them on board. And I, I'd like to think, you know, the main thing that maybe comes across is that, that I really like the people I photograph, you know, and, and I'm really warm and I'm interested in these people's stories. And I just really want to try and capture that essence. I, I'm, I'm interested in life, really. I'm interested in people's lives and the life that they still have. That's why I never photograph a dead person or, or anything like that. It's, it's about life. And I guess in some small way that is a reflection of me, but I don't think I'll ever see it. Okay, the lady here with the glasses. There we go. Thanks. Um, I'm a student here at LSE, and um, you kind of, I think taking a photo is quite intimate, um, as a lot of your photos are. And you, when you were talking about angle, you kind of alluded to sometimes there's a barrier. It takes time um, for you to be able to photograph people and to, people to feel comfortable. 
And I was wondering um, if you've noticed a change since what happened in Afghanistan. Are people, do people feel like they can relate to you easier? Or have you found there to be a difference in kind of the breaking down of that barrier or not? You know, I think, um, I would like to think obviously that I had empathy and understanding before I got injured. You know, um, obviously I spent time with people and got to know their stories. But there's always that element that you're there. You know, I, I talked earlier about the young boy that had been shot. And at the end of the day, I can always get on a plane and leave that situation. You know, and there's always that element of people thinking, why has this person come here to take our photograph? What, what are they doing? And I think when people see me, they know it's not easy. And it's not easy for me to work. You know, I try and make the best of it. But at the end of the day, you know, traveling to these places with no legs and one arm is not easy. And people kind of see that. Um, and so it does open up that trust, I think, very quickly. It makes people often, weirdly, you know, I've been in situations where people are injured themselves, but they're more worried about finding a chair for me. Or, you know, I tend to mock people. If I find something that's like lost one leg, I'm like, come on, it's a scratch, you know? Um, and that, that kind of that bond that you have is completely different and unique. And actually, when I went back to doing photography, I worried. I didn't want to go back to Afghanistan just to prove a point, just to prove that I could take photographs still. And of course, as I say, it's very difficult for me. If you watch photographers, you know, they're moving around rooms, they're low angles. I can't do any of that. You know, I basically have one shot now, which is kind of straight on. That's all I can do. When I'm in Lesbos, I can't race around after boats. I have to step back. And I work in a very different way. And so, as I say, I didn't want to go back thinking this was a vanity project. I knew my pictures wouldn't be as good technically. But what I did think would be different would be my engagement with people. Would be that people trust me in a way that they would trust nobody else. And that is something that, that has come from this. And so, you know, again, I always say when, when something bad happens to you, you have to look at the positives. You have to try and find the things that have come out of it. And, and weirdly, you know, I would say I'm a better photographer now. I would say my work's stronger. So, yeah, I mean, I would definitely agree with you or, or support that point that, that actually it's, it's opened up doors. Um. Jude here, um, and then we've got one more question there, and then one more question here, and then I'm going to ask the final question. Well, again, thank you very much for a wonderful talk. Um, my name is Jude Hallam from the LSC, and I wanted to follow up a bit on Stuart's question, and your answer, your answer was very interesting, but what do you, would your lessons be actually for the NGOs? Because you see some in, international NGOs now in the UK turning back to using these images of suffering babies and, um, you know, quite negative images of, of Africa, for example, in order to raise money. Um, and even they know they perhaps know that they shouldn't be doing that, they're still doing that because they say, that brings the money in and we need the money. So you, you said before your lessons for humanitarian photographers, what about for the NGOs? Well, I would say there's no, there's no difference. Um, because I would say that, for me, an NGO, as much as, as it is about fixing the bodies, as much as it is about supplying tents, food, whatever it may be, is about being advocate for the people that they support. And it's one of the agreements and disagreements I often have uh, with NGOs and charities. Is about, in my work, for example, I don't photograph um, an NGO at work. If I'm working with emergency, I don't photograph the emergency staff, necessarily. I try and help them tell the stories of the people that they're documenting. But it doesn't always work that way. And a lot of NGOs, you're right, they're more interested in how fast can we raise money. This picture is going to shock people. This people, you know, and, and obviously when, when um, 
a young boy, I'm Kurdi, died, a lot of NGOs chose to use that image to raise funds. And I personally didn't agree with that. You know, I didn't think it was engaging people in the story. I don't think it was engaging people and helping people to understand the situation. It was designed to shock. Yes, I'm sure it raised a lot of money and it raised an initial spike of awareness. But I think in many ways, images like that alienate us and, and take us away from connecting with these people. So for me, you know, my advice when I do talk to NGOs about how we work together, it's always about looking at the longer-term picture and looking up about how we create advocacy for those people, how we help people to relate, and that actually, as I say, maybe the story of some kids sweeping up is going to engage people in a much longer term than having a picture of some kids injecting and dead on the streets. Uh, yeah, no, the last question I asked my question, so... <laughs> <laughs> OK. Uh, and was oh, you hate it when somebody does yeah. that? Going back to the first point of the question, and that is uh, the use of photography and um, image making by the people that I document. And I think it's brilliant. You know, I know there's a lot of photographers that people get very funny about the idea of if anyone can take an image now, anyone can take a good photograph. I think it's brilliant. Um, this is slightly different from citizen journalism. I mean, citizen journalism has its own issues because, in my mind, citizen journalism is about news. And the problem with that is often it's not verified, it's not checked, it's just the fact that somebody has sent it by Twitter, it gets used by a news agency. But putting that, that whole hot topic aside, the use of, of photography by people saying, I, I think I've seen the project you're talking about in, in Zathri, uh, you know, where children were taking photographs and filming, and I think it's brilliant, I think it's an amazing thing. Um, I have a lot of, of Syrian friends who were photographers before, you know, of course Syria had a thriving art community, so they should be documenting their journey. I had a great moment in, in the story I'm doing at the moment with the UNHCR where I found myself in, in Berlin at Christmas and I was photographing a man who was showing a video clip of him crossing um, to Lesbos and it was this amazing footage of him on the boat and then we worked out that I'd actually been on the beach the day that he was filming himself crossing. And it was brilliant because he'd given this completely different perspective and one that I could never do. But I didn't think that means that, that people like me don't have a role because again we can maybe see things with a different view. Likewise when I was in, in Syria um, this, I mean, in France talking to Syrian refugees this week, one of the things that they were talking about is how they've started to read foreign journalists because they've given them a different perspective on Syria because at first they said we only read Syrian journalists, we thought we had to read we didn't think anybody from outside would know about it but actually they were introducing me to books written by researchers and professors because I think actually these people understand Syria more than we do. So what I think is is a balance. You know, you won't necessarily, for example, somebody living in Afghanistan who lives in a, in a village will tell you a story that I would never be able to tell you. And I think that is incredibly important. 
And likewise, I would be able to tell them maybe a story about Afghanistan that they wouldn't see. So I think the two should be married together. Um, in terms of, of photographers and people that I admire, I mean, there's a whole, whole list. That's kind of pub conversation where I would just rant on for, for, <laughs> for hours. But, I mean, I personally am really influenced by uh, the American photographers of the 1930s um, who documented the Dust Bowl. So people like Dorothy Lang, Walker Evans. There's a whole kind of list of, of photographers who work for the American Farms Administration. Um, because just for me, there was a very honest quality to that photography because they were asked to document and they weren't working for a commercial magazine. So that's just my personal, one of my many lists. Okay, we've got a replacement question here uh, from this lady. Hi, Giles. Thank you very much. That's Monia from Italy. And uh, I just wanted to go back to that image of uh, the child uh, that you said you were not sure whether you could take that photograph. And then you took it. I wonder, uh, I, I, said, I imagine that that happens, happened quite often. So does it ever happen that you eventually take the photos, but when you go back home, you doubt whether you have the heart to share it with the public? Or, and if that happens, how do you overcome that? Um, I would say that that situation has never arisen where I've come back and thought, I wish I hadn't done it. There was a lot of times, actually... No, I mean, I, I would say that I've always made that... What I do sometimes, actually, is the other way around. Sometimes I come back and think, I should have taken that photograph. Um, I think maybe I should have pushed it. But in a weird way, I'm kind of glad I haven't. Um, but there are times when I think... I, I will always take the option of not taking a photograph. Um, I was doing a story in Gaza last year, and it was, I, I wanted to do this, this story on people with learning difficulties living in a conflict zone. I was really fascinated by how people that couldn't really understand war, which I don't think is understandable anyway, would deal with, with these issues. And I know, having been a carer for people with autism, for example, how sounds and things can affect them in a very different way. And one of the things I found very hard is one of the stories I was doing was it was a young girl who was very badly brain damaged by a bomb when she was born. And so she would sort of sit there and she was dribbling. And, and I thought, well, if I just take this photograph, it, it felt wrong. And so I visited loads of times and I didn't take any photographs. Um, and I was really struggling because I thought it was such a powerful story, but I didn't want to just take a photograph for the sake of taking a photograph. Um, and I felt it would be wrong just to do that image. So I was actually prepared, and I was with an NGO, and you could see them kind of looking a little confused because we'd go, keep going and visiting, and I'd walk away, and he'd go, you didn't take your camera out. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you know, just because you've got me working as a photographer doesn't mean I'm going to take a photograph. Um, but actually, on the last day, there was just a moment which was just hands where, where she was holding onto her father's finger. And it was just a moment that was right, and I took that photograph. As I say, there are times when I don't find that photograph, and I do walk away, and I haven't taken a photograph. I tend to normally get annoyed with myself and think I failed because I didn't find that image. But as I say, I would rather live with myself thinking of the images I wish I hadn't taken, or sorry, the images that I you know, wish I had taken, as opposed to looking back and thinking I wish I hadn't taken that photograph. Okay, the, um, the final question yes. is my question. Um, so that'd be a good one. Big drum roll. Exactly. So uh, be prepared. Um, you, you've talked a lot about the kind of emotional con content of um, your photography, but there must be still something of the technical perfectionist that all photographers are, are, are as well as artistic beings. Um, so working on the, the assumption that your genuine preferences will come through your behaviour as opposed to what you say, what's your favourite image? And how do you balance uh, those two competing uh, problems for you? you? The pursuit of technical, creative, artistic uh, genius 
and that emotional, organic story that's so important to you. What's your favourite picture? Can you describe it? Or even better, can you show it? Um, I can't show it because I've only taken it recently. Um, I would say it's only really in the last year I think I've actually found um, my voice and my way of taking photographs. You know, at the beginning I was showing the pictures uh, taken in Angola, and there the ascetic ruled. There I was thinking about the ascetic of the image. And then as time went on, I became increasingly interested in the story, and the story was, was the focal point, and I would try not to think so much about the ascetic. Um, in the last couple of years, I think I finally managed to, to work out and bring the two together. So I've actually gone back to shooting on, on film, which gives a kind of certain rawness uh, to the images, um, and kind of strangely thinking less about the technical, but in some ways that has freed me up to be creative. And so, as I say, I would, literally has taken me, I think, 45 years but I think in the last year, I finally managed to start creating images that I'm actually uh, proud of. And that I think I'm, I'm as I say, bringing the story element together with, with the creative side. You know, I often say uh, photography is actually really simple. You just have to point the camera in the right direction and press a button. Mm. But it kind of took me 45 years to work out which direction to point <laughs> it in. And so I think that's what's kind of, kind of come together now and, and makes sense. So I would say, say the pictures I'm taking at the moment of the refugee crisis are probably the first time where I really feel like the, the, the two of, of creativity and storytelling have been combined, where neither one uh, blocks out the other. Okay. Um, I think everyone would agree that this has been inspirational, uh, engaging, fascinating, haunting, but most of all, simply human. Giles, thank you very much indeed. <laughs>